So that's Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 7. The Israelites did evil, thing, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for forty years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And then they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. After Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After he had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And the king rose from his seat. Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed it over. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down from, with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shagmah, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel.
Hi, Uni Church. I'm Mike, one of the ministers here. Great to be with you. If you could keep Judges open to that chapter, that'd be really helpful as we have a look at that together. I, um, I read a blog this week on the top 10 movie villain deaths. Uh, amongst the top 10 was Voldemort from Harry Potter, uh, the T-800 from Terminator, uh, Jabba the Hutt from the Star Wars movies, and Baby Yoda from Mandalorian 2. That's a joke. That's a... <laughs> I was really just checking that you're awake. Uh, I found it quite interesting, so I did a bit more Googling. I found tons of different lists like this. Lists like the top 10 Bond villain movie deaths. Uh, all sorts of lists by all different people. Uh, do you know what I found was common amongst most of them? The, the word satisfying. Most of the lists had the word satisfying in it. The top 10 most satisfying movie villain deaths. Because Hollywood knows if they make the bad guy bad enough and evil enough, we'll actually find it satisfying when they get theirs in the end. But Jesus says to us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how are we as Christians to think about this? Uh, Particularly, how are we as Christians to think about the defeat and the death of our one true enemy, Satan? Uh, That's where this passage is eventually going to lead us to think about, but it starts a thousand years before Jesus in the time of the Judges. Chapter 3, which we just read, it tells the story of how three different judges saved Israel. There was Othniel, Ehud and Shamgar. Othniel's story is there in verse 7 to 11 and uh, it shows us the cycle that we're going to see keeps happening in the book of Judges. The first step in this cycle is that Israel does evil by rejecting God uh, and by following a foreign God. You can see that happen in verse 7 in your Bibles there. Uh, The Israelites, verse 7, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot their Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And step two in the cycle is then God then punishes Israel, his people, by raising up a foreign army to oppress them. And we see that happen in verse 8. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathiam, king of Aram, to who the Israelites were subject for eight years. And the point of God doing this is to wake his people up to their sin of rejecting him, which leads to stage three, which is Israel return to God and they cry out to their God for help, uh, which leads to step four, and that is God raises up a judge who rescues them. Don't think a judge. Uh, with that wig and that little wooden hammer. Uh, Think of a warrior with a large sword who saves Israel from the foreign armies. And you can see that happen in verse 9. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And then that always leads to stage five, which is the land has peace again. And that's the cycle. Uh, But what happens next in the book of Judges is that deliverer or that judge then dies and Israel just return to their sin and the whole cycle starts again. And so we get verse 11 and 12. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel son of Kenaz died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, 
power over Israel. And the whole cycle just starts again. And this cycle that happens from verse 12 onwards is what we're going to look at in detail together tonight. In this cycle, Israel sin again, and God raises up King Eglon of Moab. And for 18 years, King Eglon of Moab crushes and oppresses and enslaves Israel. Uh, I quite like Bond uh, movies, and one of the things that I really like about Bond movies is that the villains in the Bond movies, they're always cast uh, really well to look kind of distinct. Now, King Eglon, he would make a great Bond villain, I reckon. He is distinctly obese. That's his thing. And he crushes and oppresses God's people for 18 years. That's possibly older than some of you guys. And then Israel, eventually they cry out. They cry to God. And he raises up a deliverer, a man named Ehud. And the first thing that we're told about Ehud is that he's a lefty. He's a left-hander from Benjamin. And that's highlighted several times. And if you were an oppressed Israelite reading this story, you would have just sat up in your seat, I think, with excitement. Because the phrase left-handed man from Benjamin, it only pops up one other time in the Bible. It's actually from Judges chapter 20. And it's a mark of an elite soldier. So I'll put this on screen for you. This is Judges 20. The tribe of Benjamin goes to war and this is what we read. The Benjamites mobilised 26,000 swordsmen from their towns. Amongst all these soldiers were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So the tribe of Benjamin has these select troops who are lefties and who are like snipers. They can hit this tiny hair with a stone. Now that phrase, left-handed... It's literally the phrase restricted in the right hand. Which means that these soldiers, that maybe they are, uh, maybe they train with their right hand restricted so that they learn to fight with both hands. The Spartans apparently did that. It gave them an edge in combat. Now, fascinatingly, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, done around 300 years before Jesus, actually translates this word ambidextrous. It's fascinating, I think. So are these 700 elite soldiers who are trained to use both their hands to give them an edge in combat? Well, actually, it's very hard to tell. But I think what we can say is very clearly in Judges 20, these lefties from Benjamin, they are their select troops. The kind of Navy SEALs, the 007 licensed to kill soldiers of Benjamin who can sling a stone at a tiny hair and hit it. And so back in chapter 3, when we read that Ehud gets introduced as a left-handed man from Benjamin, I think, I think it's flagging that Ehud is one of those guys. He's one of those select 007 licensed to kill types from the tribe of Benjamin. And Israel just sent him. Him with the yearly tribute into the tyrant king's throne room. The tribute was the yearly ransom that Israel had to pay the conquering king. Israel had to pay this foreign king crops and produce to feed him and his occupying soldiers. And there would have been loads of it. That's why there's a whole group of Israelites that take the tribute down to him. Now this was a real slap in the face, a real insult to Israel. For 18 years, 
this king and his invading army have enslaved Israel and he has been literally getting fat off their broken backs. But now, after 18 years, they have finally cried out to their God for deliverance and in the 18th year, the guy carrying the yearly ransom into Eglon's throne room is this lefty from Benjamin. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, an elite, highly trained, 007 type. Now, that, that I think we're supposed to understand him as a highly trained soldier kind of makes sense of what he does next in verse 16. Now, Ehud made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. So Ehud makes his own specially designed weapon for the job. So he's like Q from the Bond movies, who makes all these killer gadgets. That's pretty clever of him. But then I think he is one of those elite lefties from Benjamin. And the tension in the story rises, I think, as we realise who Ehud is and that he has the kind of skills that could hit a tiny hair with a stone. And right now, he's got a very large, slow-moving target in front of him. This is going to be a very easy job for this guy. But instead of striking Eglon when he has a chance, Ehud actually pays him the tribute. And he says, bye-bye. And he, he starts walking off home with the rest of the Israelites who carried the tribute down. And then halfway home, Ehud says, oh, you guys go ahead. I just got to go back for something. And he goes back, all the way back to King Eglon. It's very clever. Do you notice what he's done? He's gotten all of the Israelite civilians that carried the tribute into the king's throne room out of reach of Eglon's guards before Ehud makes an attempt on him. Because if all the civilians are standing in the throne room, in the palace, when Ehud makes an attempt on Eglon, well, they're all dead. And so he gets them out of the reach of their enemy before he goes back on a solo mission. It's very clever. But then I think he is one of these elite lefties from Benjamin. And when he gets back to the palace, he finds a way of getting rid of the guards. He says to King Eglon, hey, I've got a secret for you, a secret message. And King Eglon, he he ushers out all of the guards and he takes Ehud upstairs to a private room where they're alone. And now the hefty one is left alone with the lefty one. And this tyrant... This tyrant who has gotten fat off the backs of crushing God's people leans forward to hear this secret message. And Ehud, like in many James Bond's films before him, delivers a great one-liner before the kill and he says, I've got a message for you from God. And then, bang! He rams this sword into him. And the tyrant king, who has oppressed God's people, poos his pants and dies. What a great historical detail. The NIV uh, sanitises it a little bit for us. It says his bowels discharged. Now, um, I'm a father of three boys. I'm always disappointed at how children's Bibles choose not to illustrate this story. (laughs) Such a lost opportunity to create the most memorable illustration in the Bible for my three boys, I think. Now, uh, how many of you listen to an audio Bible on your phone? 
Great, a couple. Uh, has anybody got a dramatised version? Uh, that's, that's where they add sound effects to the story. <laughs> like, like when a woman, you know the woman where she breaks that alabaster jar of perfume to pour it on Jesus and they insert the sound of smashing pottery. Now, I don't have a dramatised version on my phone, but I would love to know what sound effect they added in for Eglon's death at this point as he poos his pants and dies. Or at least I'd like to know like, what the discussion was in, in that editorial room as they discussed, you know, what are our, our options here? And the narrative at this point, like, if you notice, the narrative really slows down at this point and it seems to savour every detail. So we get the detail about how the sword went all the way into the belly and that the fat closes up around it so that, you know, he can't get it back again, he's lost his sword. And, and we get all the details about how the guards come up to find the door locked and they conclude that the big guy's on the toilet. Why do they conclude that? It's because of the smell of him soiling himself. And thinking that their king is on the toilet, they wait. And they wait. And they wait. And you can imagine them saying, it's been a long time. I mean, I know he's not the healthiest guy, but it has been a long time. I think you should get a a key and just, can you go in and, and check? No way, I do not get paid enough. To go in, this, my wages would not cover the therapy that I would need. And the text tells us that they waited to the point of embarrassment until one of them finally unlocks the door and kind of peers in. And there he is, the tyrant, dead, with soiled trousers. But they waited so long that Ehud has escaped. And he's not only escaped, he's rallied the troops of Israel. And while Eglon's kingdom is in chaos, Israel strike and they defeat them. And after 18 years of crushing enslavement to this tyrant, Israel throws off their rule and the land has peace for 80 years. What a great story. But what on earth is it doing in the Bible? What is this story doing in the Bible? Well, I want to suggest that it's doing three things. Something for our heads to think, something for our hearts to feel, and something for our hands to do. And as we look at these three things, I think we'll work out what the big point of this passage is, and we'll put it in the blue box. Firstly, something for our heads. This passage wants us to recognise the need for a greater rescue. As amazing as Ehud's rescue of God's people was, it's not sufficient. It doesn't last. It doesn't actually stop the cycle of sin and God's judgment that characterises the book of Judges. After Ehud dies, without his leadership around, Israel just go back to sinning and this whole cycle kicks off again. Have a look. We didn't get this far, but have a look at chapter chapter 4, verse 1. Again, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. And here we go again. We'll look at that next week. Uh, Although God brought about a certain kind of salvation through Ehud, Ehud can't change the hearts of Israel. He actually can't release them from their bondage to sin. Israel's real bondage was not to a chubby Moabite king. Their real bondage was to sin and death and Satan. And no left-handed saviour can rescue them from that. 
Only a saviour with nail-scarred hands is up for that job. You see, the book of Judges, it helps God's people see the need for a greater saviour who can rescue God's people from their greatest enemy, sin and Satan. Uh, This passage, and indeed the whole book of Judges, it surges forward looking for Jesus. Jesus, like Ehud, has the job of paying the ransom for God's people. But the ransom that Jesus pays is his own life. Jesus does not come and go one-on-one with a hefty Moabite king. He comes and goes one-on-one with the Prince of Darkness himself. And at the cross... Jesus plunges the dagger that defeats the enemies of God's people. But the difference is the dagger is plunged into Jesus himself. And at the cross he dies, paying the ransom for our sin and freeing us from our biggest enemy of sin and Satan. The real tyrant of God's people, the real tyrant who has oppressed and caused misery is sin and Satan and God gives us a rescuer his son Jesus, and his defeat of Satan is permanent and lasting for those of us who trust in him. Which I think leads us to the second thing that this passage uh, wants to do for us. I think this passage does more than intellectually point us towards Jesus. It wants us to emotionally revel in the shameful defeat of our enemy at the cross. That's the response that this passage was trying to generate in God's people as they thought about the defeat of their enemy, Eglon. Uh, you, You notice how the passage highlights the shame of his defeat. It's written a bit like a comedy, almost, poking fun at the vicious enemy of God's people. It highlights his extreme fatness. It draws attention to him soiling his pants. We're supposed to laugh at the guards who let Ehud escape while they stand outside the door going, the guy did not eat roses. This passage, it is trying to generate in God's Old Testament people a certain satisfaction, a certain glee in the shameful defeat of their vicious enemy who's crushed them for 18 years. Now this this is worth thinking about a little bit. This actually reminds me a bit of um, the World War II posters that the Allies came up with, uh, mocking Hitler. Uh, This one's from General Motors. Uh, This poster encouraged people back home in the US to keep working in the industries that kept the Allied troops supplied on the front line with weapons, to keep them firing, as the poster says. And it's got a picture of Hitler getting shot in the backside. Uh, Or this one. Uh, on the left is a factory worker who's just made a, a missile. It's come hot off the production line and he's aiming it at Hitler and Hitler kind of is fleeing in a, a goose step, which not only encourages the industries back home to keep making stuff for the war effort, it also mocks the goose step that the SS soldiers did uh, in their marches. Uh, or this one, let's catch him with his panzers down. Uh, now, to kind of get the humour here, you've got to get that Panzer was the name of the German tanks in World War II. And, and you can see along the bottom of the poster, uh, there's all these tanks or Panzers destroyed. Uh, but the German word Panzer, it sounds a bit like the English word pants, and hence the picture of Hitler there with his Panzers down. Now, Hitler was a monster. He was a tyrant, But can you see what's common in all of these posters? 
Hitler, that greatly feared enemy, is being mocked with toilet humour. Because when you have a greatly feared enemy that you haven't yet been able to defeat, at least you can poke fun at them. And mocking the tyrant is often the only ammunition that oppressed people have to fire. And that's kind of what's going on in Judges 3, I think. Eglon is the monster. He is the tyrant who is responsible for nearly two decades of crushing and oppressing and enslaving God's people. And in Judges 3, he's mocked with toilet humour. The text points out his fatness. It deliberately points out the soiling of his panzers. With glee, it highlights the ineptitude of the the, um, guards who kind of say, he must be on the toilet, let's wait, and that lets Ehud get away. Judges 3, it's a little bit like those posters. It reduces the national fear of the tyrant by mocking him. And it gets them to celebrate the demise of a vicious tyrant. That is the response, I think, that Judges 3 is looking to provoke in the Israelites. It wants them to celebrate and revel in the shameful defeat of such a wicked individual. Now, it's helpful here, I think, to enter into the worldview of the Israelites because their culture was a bit different to ours. Their culture was an honour-shame culture. The greatest good was to be publicly honoured. The worst bad was to be publicly shamed. And King Eglon has been publicly shaming their entire nation on a national scale for 18 years. That's what he's been doing. Uh, Many years later, when Babylon did the same thing to Israel, uh, you might have noticed uh, how the Israelites talk about their shame. Uh, So Lamentations 2 says this about uh, the Babylonian exile. Uh, He's brought Israel's kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonour. Or chapter 5, remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see at our disgrace. Babylon, subjugating them, was felt as a disgrace to them, felt as shame. And when the prophets looked forward to a time when that foreign occupation would end, they say things like this. This is Isaiah. Don't be afraid. You won't be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You'll not be humiliated. You'll forget the shame of of your youth. Can you see it? When nations like Moab under King Eglon subdued Israel in her promised land, they experienced that as national shame, as deep, profound shame. But in Eglon's death, that shame is being reversed and the author takes glee in pointing out the shameful and embarrassing way that the great shamer of God's people gets his in the end. I said, the big point of Judges 3 isn't simply that God defeats his people's enemy. No, the point is that God shames and defeats his people's enemy. And Judges 3 wants God's Old Testament people to celebrate the shameful defeat of their wicked and vicious enemy. Do you celebrate the demise of Satan? Because we should. But my observation is that uh, most of us kind of theologically or academically understand that at the cross, our vicious enemy Satan was defeated, but we don't often emotionally celebrate his demise. 
Now, we're often emotional when we think about our personal salvation, but we're often academic when we talk about Satan's defeat. In our hub groups, when somebody says that Satan was defeated, we say it almost as a statement of fact sometimes, void of any emotion. But Judges 3 wants God's people to revel in the defeat of an evil tyrant. You know, after nearly two decades of crushing servitude to Eglon, I don't think any Israelites in their Wednesday hub group said, oh, did you hear Uh, Ehud just defeated Eglon without kind of welling up uh, in emotions? Well, how much more should we rejoice that God has defeated humanity's most vicious villain in Satan at the cross? His defeat, it ends his tyranny over my life and your life. And ever since Genesis 3, Satan has set himself against God's people, causing misery and strife, apostasy and pain and persecution for millennia. But he got his at the cross. And then at some level, we're to revel in that, that he finally got his in the end. Now, I'm not at all saying that we're supposed to make, you know, mocking pants jokes about him, but I am saying that at some level, we're supposed to revel in the defeat of an enemy who has caused humanity so much grief and so much pain. Because Judges 3 is written in a way, I think, that really clearly wants God's people to revel in the defeat of an evil tyrant, to find justice and satisfaction in his shameful defeat and how much more should christians whose enemy isn't a moabite king but whose enemies are sin and satan how much more should we revel colossians chapter 2 talks about what christ's death achieved on the cross i wonder if you've ever noticed the throwaway line in there about how god poured out shame upon satan i'll put it on screen for you This is Colossians chapter 2. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, now in context, powers and authorities are Satan and his forces. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Public spectacle, that is shame language. And if you're reading this in an ESV, which is typically more literal, it puts it like this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Jesus on the cross. At the cross, Jesus didn't simply defeat Satan. He pansered him, made a public spectacle of him and his forces, Satan, who has caused untold pain to humanity, gets his at the cross. And we're not to treat that purely academically or coldly theologically, but we're to also treat it emotionally. We're to revel in his shameful defeat. Do you have joy that your greatest enemy of your sin and Satan were defeated at the cross? Because we should. Humanity's bitter enemy has been defeated, has been shamed. 
And lastly, I think this passage has something for our hands, something to do. And that is, keep fighting. Keep fighting. Uh, But not against human enemies. Uh, I don't think uh, we're supposed to kind of apply this passage by going around uh, stabbing people that we don't like in the stomach in the hopes that they soil themselves in some kind of embarrassing uh, death. Uh, if, If you think that's actually how Christians live, can I invite you to make a pastoral appointment with Ez? Uh, that'd be great. No, not Christians aren't to fight their human enemies. In talking about our human enemies, our Lord Jesus said, love them. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. We're to love our human enemies, but Christians are to fight against our spiritual enemies. That is, our own sin and the spiritual blindness that Satan causes in this world. Uh, You might know Ephesians 6, it's a very famous passage, which talks about how our battle is not against flesh and blood, meaning our battle as Christians is not against humans and human powers, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, hear those words again? Against the rulers, the authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our battle. And Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the armour of God for that battle, the belt of truth, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The weapons for our fight as Christians against our own sin and against the deception of Satan in this world is the word of God. The word that corrects our own sin and it points others to the truth of the gospel. That is the battle that we as Christians are engaged in fighting. It's the battle that you fight in hub groups when we read the Bible and we let it kill our sinful tendencies of our own heart. It's what we do when we invite others to Christianity Explored and explain to them the gospel so that their eyes might be opened from the spiritual blindness caused by the evil one. That is the fight for Christians. The battleground for Christians isn't Moab. The battleground for Christians is our own heart. The enemy is our sin and the deceitfulness of Satan and our weapon is the sword, the word of God. How are you going with that battle? That's the battle that Christ won at the cross and it's the battle that we continue to fight in our lives until the day he returns to finish it. How are you going with that battle? Judges chapter 3, it is about how God shames and defeats the enemy of his people, the enemy of Eglon. But it surges forward, it looks forward to Jesus and how he shames and defeats the greatest enemy of God's people. That is sin and Satan. And it wants us as God's people to be really invested in that fight. Emotionally invested. As we revel in knowing that our long and bitter enemy got his at the cross. And actively invested in it as we keep fighting against our own sin and the spiritual blindness that grips our world while we wait for Christ's return and the final victory that he's going to bring. That's Judges chapter 3 and we're going to sing in response as the musicians come back to lead us.